It's Friday, December 3rd. You're locked into Real Talk. Thanks for making time for us today. A great episode in store in about one minute. I'm going to talk to the federal environment minister. Uh, what's he doing out west and what he's hoping to achieve? And and, and, and what's the deal with all these uh, critics of his calling him an eco-activist, showing photos of him in handcuffs? I want to go there. Some real talk uh, with Minister Gilbo. That's coming up in just a second. Plus, it's International Day of People with Disabilities. We're going to take a look back at some of our Real Talk coverage over this past year. Remind you, about some of the important conversations we've had. I think for some of you, it'll be the first time they're coming across your radar. We want to remind you about our archive. We're going to take a visit to the village of Lytton, B.C. today. Should that village be rebuilding after it burned down and then flooded? What a year, a hellish year for the folks in Lytton. And then our Real Talk Roundtable today in about a half an hour from right now to call or not to call. What do we do when wild species get out of control? Does it matter in the context of the discussion whether or not they're an invasive species? We're going to go there with two experts, plus your comments submitted to our hashtag RealTalkRJ and, of course, in our live chat. This episode is presented by our friends at Bitcoin Well. Every episode of Real Talk has been Bitcoin Well, a big year for that company as it continues to grow and grow. I saw CEO Adam O'Brien's quarter three update posted about a four minute video on their Instagram. You should follow them on Instagram if you're keen on learning more about Bitcoin and the blockchain and Ethereum and all that other stuff. Maybe maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. Interesting stuff. Maybe the future of finance. Could it be? They'll take your questions anytime in person or online. Just look for Bitcoin Well under the sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. Coming up in about 10 minutes, we'll take that visit to Lytton. But in the meantime, the federal minister of environment and climate change has been in the role for about five weeks now. Uh, He's a former Greenpeace activist who once scaled Toronto's tallest building to hang a banner that was denouncing his country, Canada, and then U.S. President George W. Bush as climate criminals. The Honorable Stephen Gilbo, kind enough to join us, kicking off what's going to be a busy day for him out west. Thanks for making time for us. This is your Real Talk debut, so welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ryan. Very happy to be here. I'm looking forward to, to picking your brain on what the priorities of the federal government look like, how you're going to build consensus with a, a provincial government uh, here in Alberta and across Canada, and of course, what the, maybe the, the civic implications are as well. I understand you're going to be talking to, at the very least, Calgary's mayor today, but you know yes. this photo, Minister. You, you've seen this one. You're the one featured in the photo in handcuffs. There you are in the silver bracelets wearing your Greenpeace jumpsuit. This is the one that the official opposition has trotted out saying, this has got to be the prime minister trolling Canadians. This guy is an extremist. Tell us about that day and tell us how your background relates to what you're doing right now. Well, I mean, today, um, no one would think twice about having a conversation about climate change and, and, and acknowledging that, that it's true and it's happening. You were just talking in the introduction about, about what happened last summer in Lytton uh, with the, with, with the fire, forest fires. And now uh, I know the floodings we're seeing in BC. We've seen hail, hail storms here. I think the vast majority of Canadians recognize that climate change is happening. It wasn't a case when I started working on it 25, 30 years ago, where, where people thought we were just out to lunch and that we were making up problems and we were inventing stuff. And at the time, um, people like me did have to go to, to, to some extremes to try and get the message out. I, I think now people, people by and large, get it. 
Do your friends, uh, you know, the people that you used to collaborate with and conspire with and the people that you, you participated in that in that, uh, you know, direct action with, do, do they see you now in government and, and kind of grind your gears a little bit like like you're a bit of a sellout? You're on the other side now. Or do they see this as a real opportunity for you to impact change from the government side? I, no, I think my my ex-colleagues and, and, and friends uh, are, are happy that, 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 that I'm here, but they are professionals and they won't hesitate. And in fact, they haven't uh, when, when to, to call me out or to say that they disagree with the, with a decision uh, I've made or my government has made. And they will they will continue to do that. They will keep our feet to the fire. I mean, that's their that's their job. And that's what activists do in, in the health sector or in the social sector and certainly in the environmental sector as well. So you've you've at, at that point, you know, you felt very strongly, you know, that 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 Canada, the, the Americans in particular were climate criminals. How how differently would you assess Canada's approach to the climate file now? I mean, have, have, would you would you lift the label now that it's your government in charge or are we still a long way from where you think we need to be? I'd say both. I mean, I'd certainly lift a label. I, I've decided. I, I decided to join the, the Liberal Party because of what the, what they had done between 2015 and 2019 on, on climate change. But you're right. We have a long way to go. And during the last election, that's certainly what we've heard from Canadians from coast to coast to coast. They want us to do more when it comes to climate change, and they want us to do it faster. And and that's that's frankly a recognition of an international consensus. I, you were talking about the international conference I, I was at recently in, in Scotland. And that's where the international community by and large is. We need to do more uh, and we need to do it faster when it comes to fighting climate change. Otherwise, we will have more and more extreme weather events that are costing Canadians and Canadian taxpayers billions of dollars. And, and, and the more the temperature of the planet increases, the more we will see uh, those extreme weather events. Minister, we've had some interesting conversations on the show about whether or not we should rebuild communities uh, that have experienced, you know, dramatic climate events. I mean, devastating climate events and whether it's the conversations that happened in the city of Calgary eight or nine years ago about rebuilding homes close to the Bow River or whether it's a conversation that we're about to have uh, with with uh, I mean, the person basically quarterbacking recovery in Lytton, B.C., this may not directly relate to your file, but as Minister of Environment and Climate Change, it's a fair question. Do you think we need to have tougher conversations in Canada about where we do or do not rebuild? I, I think we have to have a, an important conversation about how do we adapt to climate change because it's happening. And clearly, uh, we might have thought for a long time that you know the impacts of climate change would only be felt in some distant foreign country somewhere uh, in, the, in the South, but it's happening here. So we, we have to, and, and, and in fact, we, we've started a conversation with provinces and territories and, and certainly municipalities will play a big role. And how do we, how do we ensure that we're prepared for, for this climate changing world and that our infrastructures, road infrastructures, city infrastructures, um, electricity, energy are, are prepared to, to, to face this, this new reality. So it's not up to the federal government to, I mean, to decide whether or not a, a community will should should decide or, or not to rebuild. And if they want to rebuild, we'll certainly be there to help them do that. But but I think beyond that conversation, we have to we have to be better prepared because we can't pretend that we, we didn't know. Like we don't know when the next one's going to hit, but we know that there are going to be more and more of those. 
So how do we prepare for that? Minister, you uh, flew in. You're joining me from Calgary, correct? You're downtown Calgary that's, right now. That's correct. Yeah. You, you flew in late last night. So this morning, right after you talked to us and thanks for doing this, you're, you're going to be speaking with executives, uh, power brokers in the oil and gas sector, as well as ag, forestry, utilities. Uh, you'll be meeting with uh, Jody Gondek, the mayor of Calgary. She's been in that role for, I guess, about a month and a half now. Her first order of business, she declared a climate emergency. I suppose you'll probably see eye to eye on a couple of things with Mayor Gondek. And then uh, the Alberta government, represented by uh, Environment Minister Jason Nixon, that government's certainly had a hostile relationship with the federal government. And, mm-hmm. and, and I could say it's fair to call it a cold relationship going both ways. Uh, how do you prepare for meetings like today, walking into downtown Calgary, oil and gas? Uh, I certainly don't think it's fair to paint the entire downtown with one brush. I know there are a lot of people working hard on climate leadership, but there's also big pushback. I'd, I'd be pretending if I suggested there wasn't. So how do you prepare for a morning like today? I, I think by working on common grounds. I mean, there may be things where we don't agree, but I think there are a lot of things on which we we, we agree. The the, the 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 world of energy is transforming rapidly. Um, there there's a lot of investment, billions and billions and hundreds of billions of dollars being invested in in, in new technologies and cleaner technologies. And interestingly enough, um, if if we were to look at where most of those investments or are the which province is receiving most of these investments in renewable energy and clean technology, it's actually not my home province of Quebec or Ontario or even BC. It's here in Alberta. Um, Amazon investing in what is going to be one of the largest uh, solar farm in, in, in the world, Dow Chemicals, that's going to build a, a, new, a new plastics facility that's going to be, that's going to be net zero. Uh, Warren Buffett investing more than $100 million in, uh, in, in wind energy in, uh, in Alberta. Albertans have, a, 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 they're very entrepreneur, entrepreneurial. They have a lot of the skill sets that we will need for, for some of these new technologies. Um, I'm known as an environmentalist, and I am. I was also an advisor to a venture capital fund for 10 years uh, that's dedicated to clean technology, a Canadian fund. And they've, they've been an investment in, in Edmonton in a company that's called Enerchem, and they they develop uh, basically second generation ethanol. They take they take what's left in a in, in a in a municipal trash, and they transform it into uh, into ethanol, which can be used as a substitute to gasoline or in, in, in chemical processes. Um, and when, and and I visited that plant in Edmonton, and when you look at it, it actually looks like a refinery. It's a, so you, you need the same type of people with plumbing experience and, and electricians and people who have those type of experiences will be transferable into the into this new economy and these new technologies. Are you satisfied with the pace that you see Alberta's provincial government moving? I mean, do, do you see signs that there's a serious commitment to recognizing and responding to these opportunities around what people are calling a just transition? Uh, you know, I mean, obviously, the, the future of energy, whether people like it or not. I think we all have to do better. And I, I said it earlier, certainly us at the federal government, we, we, we need to do better. And I think uh, that's true across the board in, in, in Canada. I don't think there's anyone that can stand up and say, hey, we, we, we have it all and, and we're doing everything everything right. And that, that's simply not, not, not the case. And it's true in Canada and it's true around the world. Um, that, that, that international consensus I was talking about earlier is that everyone needs to do more and we need to do it better and faster. 
So it's true of Canada. It's certainly true of Alberta as well. Finally, Minister, are you satisfied with what Canada took away from COP26, from the UN Climate Change Conference? What are your thoughts on that now that it's all wrapped? I, I mean, we... We showed up there not as a nation that that has all the answers, um, but as a nation that wants to work with people to find the answers. We have we we are doing some things that are interesting and and perhaps could be helpful to others. And and the same is is true of other nations. And I think the purpose of these meetings is to try and figure out how we tackle what is one of the world's and, and, and humanity's most challenging issue. And that's climate change. Uh, that's uh, the Honorable Stephen Gilbo, the uh, federal minister of environment and climate change. He's going to be meeting with uh, executives in oil and gas, uh, the provincial government out of Alberta and Calgary's mayor today. The first domestic trip for the minister uh, and we'll certainly get some indication uh, what consensus may look like once these conversations are done. Thanks for teeing this up with us ahead of time. We appreciate it. Thank you very much, Ryan. You got it. Stephen Gilbo want to let our audience know we did reach out to uh, conservative uh, environment critic MP Dan Albus out of the Similkameen Valley, uh, Okanagan area and British Columbia. He didn't get back to us. We're certainly interested in different sides of this conversation. I'd like to know how the conservatives intend to hold the liberal government to account on this file. It's uh, certainly a file I know of interest and the implications are big for a lot of reasons. I mean, I go ahead and look through the live chat. Thanks again, Real Talkers, for all of your engagement. It's fantastic through these interviews. Kathy, I love of Kathy's it's almost a rhetorical question but not it's it's actually a great question Kathy we could base a whole show on it she goes so do we gently try and pull those denying and when she says denying she doesn't say specifically what whether that's you know humankind's impact on the climate whether that's whether or not these events are climate related a great conversation on that yesterday is this you know these atmospheric rivers and everything in BC is this evidence of climate change our guest said no, a climatologist, but a great conversation worth your time. Uh, Kathy says, do we, do, do we gently try and pull those denying along or do we drag, and, drag them kicking and screaming with us? Um, I mean, I think there's room for debate on on what appropriate response and, and planning and programs and incentives and uh, government investment looks like. Right. I mean, it, it's fair for people to talk about things that, you know, is carbon capture an appropriate thing? Is emissions reduction achieved best through carbon pricing? I mean, all these debates that we have are great. But, you know, with regards to dragged kicking and screaming with you know, when it comes to climate events, uh, like it or not, as humans, we can't control them. In other words, they are going to happen whether we try to push back or not. Right, Kathy? I know you know that. Jillian says it's great to have a government that actually believes in climate change for a start. She says the activists were right. And having an activist leading the way is absolutely timely and right. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Like it's, it's one thing to have the now minister in his former life. Uh, as an activist in handcuffs in police custody for something like scaling the CN Tower to put up a banner to impact the message of climate change on behalf of an organization like Greenpeace. It's different than if he's in handcuffs for like petty theft, <laughs> stealing cars, vandalism, right? Assault, assault and battery, uh, that sort of a thing. Tanya says we need tougher questions about a lot of things, infrastructure, taxes, transportation, energy transmission, supply chains. Tanya, get your application in. We could use an associate producer. She can produce. She could right. You can quarterback it. She'll produce all the specialty shows on all of that. We'll do a week of it. Infrastructure, taxes, transport. We'll solve all of the world's problems by a Friday. James says that the day will come 
when we're going to have to decide there are areas that are simply too costly to rebuild over and over. We'll see what Allison Post has to say about that in just a second. Recovery manager for the village of Linton. Right now, I want to remind you that our friends at Breathe Outdoors have just finished a rebrand, and it's amazing. I love what they did with it. I love the direction they're taking that company that's been known as Campers Village since the 1960s. They know it's not all camping. It might be climbing or maybe adventure travel. Maybe it's dog walking or snowshoeing or paddling that you're into. If so, you're going to want to invest in brands like Smartwool, Patagonia, Yeti, Mountain Hardware, all the big stuff. Their friends and family sale goes tomorrow. The Real Talk family, they say, is their family. I love this. So that means that you're all invited. It's 20% pretty much everything in the store, 20% off. Even stuff that wasn't on sale for Black Friday. How great is that? A few exclusions. You can check out all the details online at breatheoutdoors.ca. And check them out on Instagram, too. A great contest there with Mountain Hardware. Everything at breatheoutdoors.ca. The team at McBain Camera wants me to remind you that their Black Friday sales continue this week, including an opportunity to save $400 on the Fujifilm X-T4 camera body. Whether it's photography or videography, Fujifilm X-T4, it's been designed to be the ultimate hybrid image-making tool. You can get it for under $1,900, 24-hour deliveries available within Edmonton and in-store pickup at all six locations. You can visit McBainCamera.com today to see a full list of Fujifilm Black Friday deals. And of course, McBain, you know, your place to create, to inspire. Our friends at the Windspear Center and the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra are keen on reminding you that the holiday gift guide is online right now at windspearcenter.com. Looking for that perfect gift, maybe a perfect night out, maybe something really special to tell that loved one you've been thinking of them and you've put some thought into your gift? Well, tickets start at just $25 right now to go see the Edmonton Symphony Orchestra in person. You can see everything coming up, including Handel's Messiah, traditional Christmas, uh, an ESO tradition. And then, of course, Tennille Towns coming up on December 10th. If you want to check that out at windspearcenter.com. Well, let's take a trip to Lytton, so to speak. Many of us, let's be honest, may not have known much about this West Coast community-ish, I should say, at least west from here. Lytton, B.C. has been in the national news uh, for the better part of this year, at least since the summer. An enormous wildfire roared through that community, essentially leveling it. And then November's flooding and mudslides have absolutely destroyed much of the early work that had been done. It's prompting questions about whether or not communities should rebuild. Lytton was placed in the spotlight by the prime minister at COP26. We'll bring you that in just a second. Uh, we're eager to connect with Allison Post. She's the recovery manager for the village of Lytton. And she recently published a report on the virtual management of emergencies. She's got experienced deputy operations chief during the Fort McMurray fires, and, of course, during the southern Alberta floods, uh, she was doing a lot of work down there as the manager of disaster recovery appeals. She's seen a lot. And she joins us now live on Real Talk. Allison, it's nice to see your face again. Uh, it, it seems like every time you and I talk, it's on the heels of a natural disaster, which is somewhat unfortunate. True. But yeah. I, I, I can say over the many times that we've spoken, I know that you've gleaned a ton of experience about this. What's different about Lytton? I guess for starters, the back to back disasters in one year. Well, that's certainly one uh, aspect of it. And certainly, uh, you know, 
Lytton has unfortunately been, um, as you say, doubly impacted both by the massive wildfire that we saw this past uh, summer and uh, this month really from the atmospheric rivers. Uh, we've had three in the province, as you know, and unfortunately Lytton has been uh, seriously impacted by by those as well. That's resulted in cutoff of access to some of the, you know, the major communities uh, that they need to to access supplies and and other things. Allison, when did you move to Lytton? I didn't. I'm actually You're working uh, remotely. I am. Okay. Yeah. I, I was curious because I was like, are you are are you in this role as recovery manager? as a response to the wildfire or have you just come on as a result of the, like at what point did you enter the equation here? Uh, I've been on the job since November 3rd. Okay. So, so, so you, you stepped new. in, you stepped in as all hell was breaking loose. Um, I, I want to ask you for starters, I think it's important that we establish how, what do you call them? Lit nights, lit and residents. What, what do they, yeah. lit nights. Okay. So my understanding, and we, I want to play a quick video here from the prime minister at cop 26 in Glasgow. Um, to speak, frankly, it sounded like lit nights were some of them pretty pissed off about how their community was portrayed. I don't know if that's true or not, but to tee it up, here's the prime minister recently at cop 26 in Canada. There was a town called Lytton. I say was because on June 30th, it burned to the ground. The day before the temperature had hit 49.6 degrees Celsius, the hottest ever recorded in our country. My understanding, like I said, is that the folks in Lytton didn't appreciate that very much. Is that accurate? Have you picked up on that? Has anybody mentioned that to you or talked to you about that? Uh, somewhat, but I think it's important to remember that the village of Lytton is not just the town site itself. The village is uh, located on the territory of the Naklakam peoples, mm. sorry, <laughs> and um, the, the wider uh, uh, community has, you know, several hundred people. Uh, the Lytton First Nation is uh, begins where the village ends. So there are several, you know, hundred people that still call that community home, that are still living in that community, that intend very, very much to rebuild. And uh, we are doing our best to facilitate that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is it, it's it feels like a sensitive question. It is, I guess, one, because you're talking about people's homes. There are going to be people that were born and raised in Lytton, uh, people that are going to be adamant and say, I'm going to die in Lytton. Uh, boy, that feels like I teed that one up, doesn't it? Uh, the point being, and don't read into that comment too much. Uh, the point being, there are people that are going to say, this is my home. You know, I've been part of different conversations where people say, oh, these remote northern communities in, in Nunavut or what, what have you, we got to fly in supplies. And there's so, why don't these folks just move to the cities? And people go, are you kidding me? That's not how it works. You don't just move people. But there are conversations and I think some fair conversations about whether or not it even makes sense fiscally and otherwise to rebuild in some communities that have fallen subject to several natural disasters. Now, you're in a position where you're going to have to choose your words carefully, but where do you land on that? I mean, what would you say to Canadians that go, you shouldn't be rebuilding Lytton? It doesn't make sense for a number of reasons. Well, I, I would very, I would, you know, keep away from that conversation um, 
because I know I've talked to the villagers in Lytton. I've talked to the community. I've I've interacted and and really connected with with the community themselves. This is a resilient community and they very much intend to rebuild. We've recently opened, in fact, a resiliency center um, where number of people are coming in every day just for coffee and to reestablish those community connections and community hubs. And uh, they're arranging for, you know, Christmas gatherings and potlucks and things. There's still a community there. And uh, we, I know that they very much intend on rebuilding. How would you describe the spirit there right now? My, my, uh, I mean, obviously losing everything is a hell of a thing. I mean, there'll be people that will, um, in a healthy way, I'm, I'm certainly not saying this disparagingly, but people will go to counseling for years. I mean, f- fire, disaster, flooding. It's devastating for people that lose everything. And, and then and then we know there are these folks that just put on a brave face and they just get up and they put on their work boots and they start building again. And I bet you there's a whole bunch of of evidence of that as well. How would you describe the mood in the town? right? I mean, I'm, I, my understanding is even to paint some perspective for our listeners and our viewers uh, the BC government approved a $1 million grant to go to Lytton right now, just so the town could meet its payroll, right? Cause the tax base has been eviscerated. Like th- that's how serious this is. Essentially. Yeah. What our sort of immediate priorities are, are, you know, first establishing that resiliency center, which we have done. Um, the next thing is, you know, to really get on the ground and start working with our uh, community partners to uh, complete the debris removal. Um, and certainly some of uh, we've been uh, working on the process for that in the past number of weeks. So we're excited to get on the ground and really demonstrate some of um, to Lytton residents and to the community and to the country, essentially, that, uh, you know, we are rebuilding and we are going to uh, complete the removal and, and start to, there's going to be real progress being seen very, very shortly. Allison, it was interesting to listen to Federal Minister Bill Blair a few weeks ago talking about, I mean, the bigger picture in B.C. And I mean, you look at the highway construction. The, I mean, if I started listing all the infrastructure that was damaged, we'd be here all day. Um, but he made an, an astute and, and maybe even obvious comment about rebuilding bridges. For example, he says we don't just grab the blueprints from 40 years ago and build the same bridge. Right. We have to rebuild this infrastructure in a way that reflects our understanding of how we can better provide that that resiliency with regards to the strength of the infrastructure against these big climate events it might might come across as a little bit strange to describe this as an opportunity in Lytton but when you're essentially starting from scratch as devastating as that is there is a real opportunity isn't there to build that community differently and to build a community that's maybe better prepared for what the future may hold so how does that manifest itself into what you're doing and into kind of the ethos of that whole recovery and rebuild effort? Absolutely. Well, we're taking our leadership from mayor and council who are uh, providing um, resources to the community uh, with regards to uh, the new building bylaw that's going to be established. And the Citizens Advisory Committee has been stood up to provide recommendations to council on how they would like to see their community rebuilt. So certainly, you know, we recognize that the homes that were there uh, before the fire were 
you know, built in the 60s and 70s. So certainly all the new construction there will have to abide by uh, current building codes, of course. And uh, those, are, I think, include a lot more resilient materials um, and, and materials that are in compliance with fire smart uh, guidelines. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine being somewhere that's 40. What was it? 49.7 degrees Celsius on that record setting day earlier this summer. That's wild. I mean, 30 is yeah. hot. Um, Allison, it's really good. Were you about to say something? Sorry. No, no, go for it. Yeah, well, I just want I wanted to wrap on a, on somewhat of a happy note, uh, although I guess there is some optimism through this conversation. It's just so difficult to see these images for anybody that's taken in this interview on YouTube. They're seeing what this what this village looks like right now. I mean, it's just absolutely it's like hellfire roared through there. And then now you got the floods and man, oh, man. But 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 there are reasons, I think, that that Canadians can be encouraged and, and we'll learn more about what Lytton's. I mean, this is a story we'll follow for years. Right. And we'll continue to, to chat with you um, on, on a candid note. Uh, some of those that are tuned in to us live right now can't help but notice they hear a bird chirping in the background. And <laughs> and we've had we've had uh, canine guests on the show before. We've had feline guests on the show before. This may be the first bird. And I'm wondering if you'd be so kind as we wrap on this Friday to introduce us to whomever it is that we're hearing in the background. My little bird keeps me company and sings to me all day long as uh, as I'm I'm doing the recovery work with Lytton. Uh, so it's lovely. Her name is Paco, Paco. And she is a Paco, and she is a little yellow canary. A little yellow canary, Paco. <laughs> I love that. It's kind of appropriate that someone in disaster management would have a canary, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's not an accident. Look at you. Look at that smile. That's not an accident. That's your little joke, isn't it? I love it. Allison Post. Allison Post is the recovery manager for the village of Lytton. Um, and and congratulations Alon- on one year of real talk. Very, very happy to see that. Hey, thanks, Allison. I was excited when I saw that Hoyles had booked you. You and I, I, I don't know if we last saw each other in person, maybe at the disaster management conference at AMA or something like that. But it's been quite some time. It's nice to see you again. Absolutely. Lovely to see you again, too. Thanks, Allison. As mentioned, Allison Post is, I mean, she's kind of seen it all, right? Um, you know, flooding in southern Alberta, wildfires in Fort McMurray and now in Lytton coming on, coming on the job on November 3rd. Can you imagine? Can you imagine coming on to that job? Like, well, you think you're dealing with uh, with wildfire and then whammo, whammo, <laughs> yeesh. Uh, so great conversation on uh, on the live chat. I, ha- you know, Tanya says at some point the smart option has to be to walk away. The planet's different now. It will be even more so in the future. Uh, understandably, extremely difficult to contemplate. But then there's, you know, folks like Marie uh, and Marie's right where, where she says, you know, you got to walk in these people's shoes. How would you react if it was your home? You don't just make a decision to move people. Uh, Marie says wildfire can happen anywhere. None of you are safe from the possibility of wired wildfire destroying your home. Um, you know, what, what, what could be interesting is, is when insurance companies get in on the mix here, right? Cause it's one thing for like the federal government to the provincial government, Justin Trudeau is never going to step up and say, you can't rebuild there. That would be politically an absolute nightmare. Uh, but insurance companies can say, we're not going to pay to rebuild there, or we're not going to cover this, or your next policy is going to be this amount. hundred percent insurance companies can do that. So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind. An interesting thing to ponder. We're going to be moving on to a Real Talk roundtable to call or not to call in just a few moments Uh, right now. I mean, gosh, all all of this, we endeavor every day to learn something, to better ourselves, become smarter about stories that matter, more well-informed 
It's kind of what Athabasca University is all about is Canada's online university. But check this out. So I'm poking around their website last night, AthabascaU.ca. I'm always looking for cool things I want to be able to tell you about, right? Like, you know, not just read you the same stuff every day. And so I'm on there and I realized that Athabasca U has partnered up in the last couple of months with our title sponsors, Bitcoin Well, through their Power Ed program to present Bitcoin Academy. What? How cool is that? So if you want to learn more about crypto through an online course, Power Ed at Athabasca, you can find it online right now at AthabascaU.ca. Maybe you go, ah, Bitcoin's not really my thing. I'm trying to learn French. Perfect. Maybe you're like, eh, Francais? No, merci. And then you go, okay, but what, what about AI or tech or machine learning? Coils is looking at me like maybe I could work on my French a little bit, which would be a fair criticism. If I wanted to, I could register online right now at AthabascaU.ca. The team at Kubi Energy, this conversation about climate and trends and changes and, and hey, the new job market, this is right in Kubi's wheelhouse. I've told you before about Jake Kubiski, the, the CEO. He was an electrician in the oil sands for years until he founded this company. Went for lunch with Jake last week. I said, what's something really cool going on at Kubi? He goes, you would not believe how many oil and gas electricians we've been hiring for solar installs. It's a great opportunity. They're always taking resumes. You can find out more about what Kubi's doing in British Columbia and Alberta at kubienergy.ca. Speaking of energy, speaking of power, the team at Park Power, you know, of course, they're behind our hashtag, Real Talk RJ. It's powered by parkpower.ca. They also work with Kubi Energy. Did you know this? If your solar panels are overperforming, especially into those spring and summer months where we get 18 hours of sunlight, you know, they can set up a way. There's a structure in place that puts cash back in your pocket. You can get all the details. Check out the frequently asked questions at parkpower.ca. The promo code 2021-REALTALK gets you $70 off your first bill. No strings attached. Our Real Talk Roundtable coming up in just a few moments, but it is today, December 3rd, International Day of Persons with Disabilities. And we wanted to put a few highlight interviews on your radar. In other words, what we're doing right now is teeing up about two, two and a half hours of content. If you want to really get into some of the issues that are pertinent, relevant, and maybe under discussed across this country. Earlier this year, on July 13th, the show took on a conversation about marriage and disability and how unknowingly our entire culture has been discriminating against people with disabilities who would want to pursue relationships. The Council of Canadians with Disabilities, Jules Smith, joined me to talk about how Canadians living with disabilities face barriers to love as disability support funding gets scaled back or taken away if they get married. It's true. Check this out. I don't think that we should go, oh, that group and that population of Canadians deserve less. They deserve less of a life. This, you know, we know it's it's already difficult enough to live with a disability and the opportunity to have love and a relationship and a family, I think, is just part of what we expect for all Canadians. That was back on our July 13th episode, which, of course, you can find on our YouTube channel. Thanks for subscribing. Or, of course, anywhere you get your podcasts. We also held a roundtable on July 16th, three days later, talking about disability and sex. You don't hear that conversation every day, but but you do hear it on shows that keep it real, right? Ryu Paralysis Recovery Center's Bean Gill, uh, disability awareness consultant Andrew Gerza, a podcaster, and intimacy coach Trish St. John got into it. 
people often think that people with disabilities are asexual as soon as you have a disability. And that's totally false. Most of our clients are people who have never been touched in a sensual, caring, passionate way. They're touched every day, all over their body, except in areas that may bring them pleasure. Uh, and a lot of them have not uh, got the tools or the accessibility to be able to do self-love, masturbation, those topics. And so we get a lot of our clients in that. And we also get a lot of clients saying, how can I talk to my caregiver? How can I broach the subject that I'm a sexual being? And when should I do that? Should I be doing that in the hiring process? Yes. <laughs> yeah. mm, yes. I'm touched daily by by individuals, you know, by caregivers. And, you know, there's, there are boundaries you have to set with the caregiver and it's, it's very, very strict in how it's done. And I respect and, and believe in that. But because of that, many of us don't get the opportunity to explore our bodies either by ourselves or with somebody else. I learned so much on that round table. That was July 16th. You can check it out. On July 20th, we welcomed, in, in my mind, uh, one of the most admired Canadians in history. I think it's fair to call Rick Hansen, the man in motion, exactly that. Here he was on July 20th. So I think the reality is here, Ryan, is moving people um, from the old kind of just the charitable model. Yeah. You know, which is, you know, way back pre my tour and even uh, beyond the human rights model, which is so critical in today's world but also thinking of the economic and cultural value proposition, you know, that actually comes forward because if we do the right thing, uh, you know, it's not just the right thing, you know, it's also massively beneficial for our economy, for our culture and our society. We had such a great conversation with Rick about how we build our buildings and what equity looks like in architecture and fascinating stuff. That was back on July 20th. If you'd like to check it out, that meant a lot to me that he made time for real talk. And this one was just recent, uh, just a couple of weeks ago or so. On November 16th, we talked to Dorothy Palmer about representation in the arts, representation on stage when it comes to persons with disabilities. And, and here's what Dorothy had to say. And inspiration porn is the way um, historically the traditional media and the general public sees disabled people as you poor thing as I'm so sorry for your horrible life, as in also let me help you, the charity model. I will assist you because I am better than you. I will assist you because I feel sorry for you. I will write about your life story because the important view is my view of you, not your view of yourself. I had never heard of inspiration porn before, but she was bang on. And that was a great conversation. If you'd like to check it out, that was November 16th. So it's International Day of Persons with Disabilities. We encourage you to learn more, to be more inquisitive, to try to understand what other people do on a daily basis to continue to fight for equal treatment. It's been an eye-opening year for us on this front, and we appreciate that roster of guests that have joined us. Please do enjoy your tour through our archives. Our friends at Friesen Brothers, before we get into our Real Talk roundtable, insist that I remind you that they're putting together customized gift boxes every day to fit every occasion. Now, of course, the obvious one here through the holidays may be a good friend celebrating Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or Christmas or Festivus. Maybe it's Valentine's Day or St. Patrick's Day or what have you. Friesen Brothers has a perfect gift box to fit every occasion. 
oftentimes featuring local products, including right there from your own backyard. You can contact your local Friesen Brothers store for more details, to custom design that gift box, or to simply ask them to take it over and make you look good. You can check out Friesen.com slash gifts for more information. And don't forget a Christmas feast every Saturday this month from 4 p.m to 8 p.m. at all Friesen Brothers Fresh Market stores. All you can eat turkey and ham for just $25 a person. I'm going to go take him up on that. All you can eat, eh? All right. St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge is getting ready for a big weekend. Of course, tis the season. A lot of people are going to be upgrading their rides. We're kind of getting off easy right now. There have been some dangerous road conditions, but not those big, heavy blizzards back to back to back. You know they're coming. And when they do, you're going to want to trust your family's travel to the 4x4 brand people trust most. The best Jeep selection in the province is at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge, including that brand new Grand Wagoneer that everybody's trying to get their hands on. Stunning. This one's going head to head against the Escalade and it is delivering. You can learn more online. Shop their inventory via the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Every Friday, we bring you a real talk roundtable and I'm looking forward to this one. I'll be honest. I don't know the science behind this conversation on animal calls. All I know is what I hear from people around me. All I know is that it can be emotional. But a lot of times when it comes to things like conservation or wildlife management, our emotions aren't always based on facts. So we'll see an image of someone out of a helicopter shooting at wolves as they run for their lives. And we say, this is horrible. But what do we know about the science, the thinking behind calls? Canada's got a wild pig problem right now. And our next guests are going to get into this with us with some real talk, we promise. Dr. Ryan Brook is an associate professor at the University of Saskatchewan in the College of Agriculture and Bioresources. His research team studies wildlife. He's been focused on invasive wild pigs in Canada for more than a decade. Uh, Mateen Hassami is a member of the Wyandotte Nation, a wildlife ecologist specializing in caribou and moose ecology. Indigenous-led wildlife conservation and hunter harvest and food security. Mateen was part of the research team that published the paper Indigenizing the North American Model of Wildlife Conservation that was published just a couple of months ago, a few months ago now, back in August. I'm grateful that both of you have made time to join us. Thanks so much. Dr. Brooke, why don't we start with you? We're not just going to talk about wild pigs today. I want to ask you about seals and feral horses and wolves and everything else. But pigs are your area of focus. What is it about the wild pig that we need to know? Set the scene for us with regards to the magnitude of this problem in Canada right now. Well, it's been a very recent uh, thing that's occurred. Uh, You know, we do, there are no native pigs to Canada. And so they were brought over in the 1980s to start farming them for meat. And this seemed like a reasonable idea at the time, but unfortunately what's happened is that they've escaped and even worse, people have cut the fence and let in some cases hundreds go at a time. And people say, wow, what are we worried about? These things will never survive a Canadian winter, but they have, and they've thrived and they've expanded. And now their range across Canada is larger than the country of Spain. And so we have this really rapid and really massive expansion of wild pigs, and they're a tremendous disaster in terms of ecology. They destroy environments. They get in with their nose and they rip up the ground. They eat agricultural crops and and they reproduce so fast. They have two litters per year, six young per litter. And so they are easily uh, the worst invasive large mammal on the planet. 
and and have been and are continuing to expand completely out of control on the Canadian prairies right now. It was fascinating for me. I I, I put it out there that the two of you were going to be joining us today. I threw it out on my Twitter yesterday and I, I thought, you know, it'd be kind of interesting to gauge where people are at with regards to calls. Like, you know, we use the word call. It's a lot gentler than just talking about if you called it the kill. Right. But that's what it is. It's mass extermination. Right. Of, of a certain or given species. And I asked people basically about, you know, how they felt about this and, you know, to call or not to call. And it was really fascinating because comment after comment after comment was call, 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 knock him out. It's terrible. It's a huge problem. Call. I'm going, what? I mean, I was expecting comments from people saying this is horrible. This is barbaric. This is anti-ethical. Like you can't just go and call thousands of, of animals because it doesn't sort of fit your narrative of where the pecking order needs to be as human beings. Does that surprise you, Ryan, that basically everybody seems to be on board with it? Yeah, I'm actually, uh, it's a, it's always a challenging issue. And I know cull comes up in every conversation I've ever had in my entire career, whether it's wolves or, uh, you know, overabundant white-tailed deer or wild pigs um, or any other kinds of problems of depredation or crop damage is cull, cull, cull. But as you say, a cull is a very kind of open term. What does that mean? And I think that what, we know from the human perspective is that people support it when it's needed and and it's a clearly defined issue, but also how you do it is critically important as well. And that is fundamentally important for us that it's done in a way that if you do have to euthanize animals, and it does happen, certainly pigs are a good example, um, that it's done in a way, and I learned that on the farm and it's been reinforced through all my training at the university, is that it has to be clean and and uh, as short as possible before an animal is put down. So very short period and minimize pain as much as possible. So we're not talking about poisonings. I'm assuming you're not going to be talking about trapping and snaring, right? Well, all of those are on the table as options. And so there is a toolbox out there of options to deal with populations and, and what are often referred to as overpopulations, or in this case, you know, anything more than zero is unacceptable in most cases when it comes to pigs. And so there is a toolbox out there. That's as a researcher, that's not my place to decide. That's up to the public and governments and and stakeholders to, you know, understand what is publicly acceptable. And what used to be acceptable 100 years ago, like poison, is much more controversial now, especially because things like strychnine, there's probably no worse way to die that Mm -hmm. exists that I'm aware of than being poisoned by strychnine. It's absolutely uh, horrific. Yeah, not Uh, to mention what happens with the carcass, right? The carcass of a poisoned animal then eaten by other animals. And we we can get into that for sure. Mateen, you're as mentioned in in your introduction, you're a you're an expert in indigenous led wildlife conservation. I suppose there's a certain irony here. When we talk about invasive species that were brought here by people, I suppose that the indigenous model might have something to say about how this conservation effort or this wildlife management effort happens and what the right way to do it is. Yeah, certainly. I'm I'm not quite yet an expert, but I'm definitely learning. And I think it's important for people to know that indigenous peoples of Canada, there's tremendous variability in uh, ethics and uh, value systems towards managing wildlife. So we can't paint every indigenous community and government with the same brush as to 
their take on managing wildlife. And in terms of invasive species or colonizing species or overabundant species, um, yeah, different nations have different approaches. And uh, relevant to caribou recovery, uh, especially in Western Canada, uh, wolf control and wolf reduction uh, is a strong tool uh, when combined with other levers to help recover uh, woodland caribou. And in British Columbia, there are some really strong efforts led by Indigenous communities to recover caribou that includes wolf control and wolf reduction. So I guess it it begs the question as well, or I want to integrate this question into, into our conversation. I'll get both of you to chime in on this. Um, when it comes to public opinion, and it's either relevant or not, I mean, you're either going to do it or not. That'll depend on government policy and the policy of these different departments. And of course, wildlife management is critically important, we know, uh, in a number of different contexts, including agriculture. Uh, We're hearing about massive swaths of damage done by wild pigs, for example. But when it comes to the whole, and I'll just say it, the sort of bleeding heart angle on this, I'd be curious for the two of your take on a poll, a Twitter poll that I ran over the past 18 hours or so. It's unscientific. It's unofficial. It's anecdotal. But I said with a bunch of comments about tasty bacon being left on my tweet about our Real Talk roundtable on culling wild species, including pigs, does your opinion on calls depend on which species we're talking about? Like if it's not pigs, what if it's wolves or horses or seals? And I thought this was interesting. Uh, not a ton of votes on this one, about 220 votes, but but 51% of respondents said they, are, they acknowledged, they admitted they're species specific. In other words, they may have no problem with calling pigs, but they may have a problem with calling, for example, feral horses. 36% said, nah, call them all. Not species specific, doesn't matter. And then 13% voted for, let them live, you jerks. In other words, about 13% said they're not cool with calls whatsoever. There was one great response that I wanted to recognize here from one person. Uh, This is Chris, who said, you left out of your poll reason specific in other words if the species is invasive and harmful to the ecosystem sure but if the species just has a bad reputation due to misinformation like wolves says chris then it's a hard no mateen you want to take this one on first you surprised or would you would you expect the numbers that we saw there yeah i would say i think i would believe that yeah a lot of people uh, in Canada would follow that the statistics that you showed in that poll. And I think it's interesting that when it comes to culling species and you hit it on the head, there's so much variability of what species is being called. For example, if there's an invasive fish in a lake, and this happens all the time, um, they'll often be extirpated via human measures to kind of wipe that lake clean. But when it comes to Uh, reducing wolves to help uh, a caribou population that's on the brink of extinction. There's a lot more emotions that come into play. Um, But I think it's important to follow the science. And there is strong statistical support that when a species like wolves um, are in an area and when they're overabundant because of humans, because of the way we've changed the landscape, the way we've changed the food web, Um, it's important to trust the science and to know that we need to pull those levers, um, even if they don't align with our human emotional uh, inclinations. And it's also important to know that Indigenous peoples and 
indigenous peoples have been managing wildlife for thousands of years. And an example on the coast of BC, uh, there was a paper that just came out showing that thousands of years ago, indigenous peoples were reducing sea otters to lessen the competition for shellfish. And, you know, indigenous peoples in Banff National Park were, were burning habitat to enhance, um, enhance forage for ungulates, such as sheep and bison. So I think that's a, a misnomer in the public is that humans cannot have this, uh, this role in the food web. We think that humans must be removed and that everything should be pristine, but that's not how it's been for thousands of years. And it's important to know that, especially the people in the communities who are most closely related to species at risk, such as caribou and the people that depend on those animals for food security, um, I think it's important that we take emotion out of the mix when making decisions to recover species such as caribou. It's always so, I mean, it's easier said than done though, right? Uh, totally. to, to take emotion out of the mix because like, like I said earlier, and, and I'm referencing a video that I remember seeing myself uh, of a person up in a helicopter taking aim at a pack of wolves. This wolf is, this wolf is obviously terrified running from this helicopter and and I'm and I'm again. I acknowledge I'm applying like human emotion to an animal, and people are going to be like Jesperson, you know. But the point is, it's tough to see. It's tough to see people blowing away a wolf from a helicopter because we've deemed that that's not you know. It, but again, I'm not an ecologist. I'm not a scientist. I will acknowledge as well. I was a little surprised by the the, the number of people. You know, that I'm supposed to have this big progressive sort of like hippie, you know, Twitter following. And the majority of people are like, yeah, I'm fine with the call. <laughs> I was a little surprised. I'm one of those people that applies emotion to it, doctor, if I'm being honest with you, Dr. Brooke. Well, and I agree. I think we do need to recognize the human element. We can't ignore that. And that's why I think what's really, really important, what we've seen in wildlife management over the last couple of decades has changed is not only so I'm an ecologist and we call our animals and we track them and we map them and we model it and we do all the science, but we also do a lot of social science because we can't ignore that human element. And so we have ways of, of much like you've done with your polls on Twitter to do very comprehensive and, and quantitative and mapping interviews to get that insight and capture that traditional knowledge from indigenous people and from local hunters and farmers and fishers and all the people living and working on the land, we can incorporate that in. And for example, we talk about carrying capacity as in how much habitat will support X number of animals. And so we can predict a carrying capacity or an ecological carrying capacity. But now we also think about a social carrying capacity, which is how many, how many animals will people actually tolerate on the landscape? And it turns out from our research, for whether it's work on wolves and now with pigs and other species, is that a main driver of that is your own personal experience. And so that poll of yours would change a lot, I think, because what's gonna almost certainly happen in the next 10 or 15 years is I predict, for example, you will see wild pigs wandering through Edmonton. And I think people's perceptions of that intolerance will change dramatically uh, if and when, which I expect 
more likely sooner than later. Uh, you see a, a pig or a family of pigs wandering through the river valley when people are out hiking and, and, and doing their things. So that, that, those kinds of actual experiences fundamentally affect our, our decisions about whether we support calls or not. Yeah, Ryan, just like to be clear, you're not joking, right? This is not hyperbole. You're saying that actually is possible. Like we, we have moose. I mean, the neighborhood we live in, we're just up from the river valley. We've had a moose walking down our street. It's happened. I've only seen it once. But it happens. Uh, you're, you're being serious. That big. What, what are these things? 250 pounds and, and a little quite aggressive. You're saying that you could have them in the cities for real. Oh, for sure. They're, they're well established in urban environments. And, you know, you look at our wild pig book and there's a whole chapter on urban pigs. Um, we have a network of trail cameras in the city of Saskatoon right now. I've been running for a year. Uh, we haven't seen pigs yet, but that is certainly something we expect. And Edmonton and Saskatoon would be two probably the best examples in Canada of the more, most likely seeing animals. We've got the river valleys. There's there's known populations of wild pigs nearby. Huh. So I, I would say it's it's absolutely a matter of if not or when not if they're going to show up. So, you know what? Yeah. These are these are interesting back to back conversations. We I just talked to Allison Post. Uh, who's quarterbacking a lot of the recovery efforts in Lytton, B.C. after the wildfire and after the mudslide. And and uh, Mateen, for your interest, we actually had a, a fascinating conversation earlier this summer during the so-called wildfire season about indigenous historical wildfire management and conservation efforts. And it, I, I learned so much and it was just an amazing conversation. But I was thinking as I was talking to Allison, a friend of mine said it this summer, we were out on his jet boat and we're traveling the North Saskatchewan through downtown Edmonton. It's like one of the coolest ways to see the city. And he's a firefighter and he's looking and he goes, you know, it's so funny how so few people recognize you could have a massive wildfire right in an urban center. Right. People always think it's going to be Slave Lake or Fort McMurray or Lytton or these rural, you know, Jasper National Park or whatever it is. He's looking around. And as he's saying this, I'm like having this like ding kind of light bulb moment where I'm going, why couldn't. Edmonton's River Valley be ablaze through the so-called wildfire season, just like anywhere else. But we're, we're kind of wired in a weird and selfish way. Selfish is the word. And I'm right at the front of the line here. I'm accusing myself of this, too. Until it touches down in our backyard and becomes an urban problem, the majority of Canadians really don't take this stuff seriously. Do we, Mateen? Yeah, I agree. And I think that's the case with wildlife management in general. And across Canada, there's a crisis of biodiversity, of biodiversity loss, and also an overall mismanagement of wildlife species. And there's a number of factors that contribute to that. But to me, a big one is people being removed from our natural world and people not being immersed in, in wildlife and the land. And that's a huge problem because when you don't value or cherish something, you're less likely to stand up and say that it needs to be fixed. So, you know, in city centers like Vancouver, um, we look out to Grouse Mountain and things seem okay. There's beautiful mountains, but we don't know that there's, you know, tremendous mismanagement of our forests, our wildlife, our uh, wildlife management is extremely underfunded. Uh, so I think it's really important for people to, to understand that uh, there's more than just what goes on in our backyard. And I think that's something that w is important, uh, you know, for this next generation and for uh, educators is to really prioritize getting that next generation out on the land and kind of restoring the connection that human beings have had for thousands of years. And that's 
depending on ecosystems and wildlife uh, for every component of our lives, from recreation to health and medicine and culture. Uh, so I really hope that, uh, and I, I would say objectively, the direction that we're headed as a society is more removed and more technologically uh, based. But I, I really hope that we can uh, get back to our roots and uh, get people back on the land, because I think that's the best way to, to improve the status quo. Kelly says if we get wild pigs in the river valley, that could make it unusable. You know, she says they're mean and territorial. People will get hurt. I mean, you think about people walking their dogs or jogging little kids down there. Lou's watching. Lou says you got to go to a town like Canmore. Uh, it says, look at the rabbit problem that they've got there. Cute little bunnies overrunning the town. People are talking about elk in some of the mountain towns. I mean, it's obviously beautiful. Right up until a German photographer gets gored for getting too close during the rut. Right. We've all seen those videos. Um, Gina says there are deer everywhere in Okotoks, you know, aggressive in the Germans are like, what's what do you have with us? It's just always German tourists. What can I say? Gina says there's deer everywhere in Okotoks. There's aggressive deer warnings all the time. Air I said, Straya says, you know, we, my parents live in this certain neighborhood. They get deer in the spruce trees, deer in the rose hips in their yard. Heidi says in Camrose, her community overrun by deer. She says they're not necessarily dangerous, but they're totally annoying for gardeners. And she says, and I don't hate the idea of calling them, to be honest with you. I mean, there's a ton of comments here. They're all different species. People are talking about uh, somebody made a comment about ungulates and feral horses like wild horses. That's a tough one. Right. I mean, you think of how humans horses are just it's like dolphins, horses and dogs. And I'll throw cats. All right. Fine. I'll put cats on the list, too. But I mean, there's species that if you see someone mistreat a certain type of animal, nobody cares if if a rainbow trout gets knocked over the head for supper. But if you see somebody knock a bottlenose dolphin over the head, you get pissed off. And if you see somebody calling horses, whether they're wild or not, people are going to react. What is the future, Dr. Brick? What is the future of this context of wildlife management look like, do you think? Is this going to become more and more commonplace, these calls? There's, there's no question that uh, things are very, very complicated in that regard. And, and certainly, again, this notion that we have to recognize the role of the social sciences and the, the human element here. And that, you know, when I started taking wildlife biology, there wasn't really any discussion or recognition that people play such a big role, but they do. And things have changed dramatically now. We have more vegetarians in Canada than we have farmers. And so that whole perspective has changed dramatically and we have to recognize that. And we'll always get call for calls. Politicians love calls because it sounds very proactive and energizing and leading. And so this is a call. We're going to do a call. And so every single time I've ever talked about a wildlife issue ever, the first thing out of people's mouths is call, call, call. I think we have to really broaden that toolbox. And I think that's probably my my biggest contribution today is to say that if we just focus on call and, and you know they the saying is is absolutely true that if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail and so we have to move beyond just saying the call is the as if the calling is the only option we have in the toolbox we have this huge range of things we can do you know with beavers we now have beaver deceivers and we have this new new technology that we can work with beavers so much better and manage those conflicts rather than just trying to say the only way to do that is to kill them and cull them and we know that's not true same with elk coming into cities and towns and Banff is, you know, there's hazing technology and there's a whole bunch of ways 
that we can do a better job of of opening that toolbox to say, okay, we've got 30 options here. We can, instead of removing them, what if we sterilize them? And that's becoming incre increasingly common for urban deer, for example, is rather than going and try and remove them and do some cull, which can be controversial, what if we uh, sterilize some and just help reduce the population? So lots is of- that, Is that realistic though, Ryan? Like, is that a- is 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 that like a, a surgery? Like, is is it realistic that we're going to yeah, sterilize yeah, well, hundreds only, of thousands of deer? Sur really? Yeah, surgery, but also potentially, and as we're getting better in this, uh, you know, perhaps with some other injectable drugs, because of course we we do have other options other than surgery. Now, the surgery is permanent. Uh, using it, injectable drugs is usually requires follow up, so there's challenges, but. Where there's a will, there's a way. And my response would be, and, and you know, for example, when we talk about the animal rights people, 99 times out of 100, I'm on the same page as them. We, we have no interest in terms of uh, harming animals or causing unnecessary, you know, deaths. Or uh, if we have to do these things, it's because we have to and it's required. But also uh, being a strong advocate of looking at other options. So, if, if people are saying, well, we don't want culls, okay, great, I support that and, and I think that makes sense, but then let's put our money where our mouth is and try other things like sterilization, which is potentially, it was certainly another tool in the toolbox to be considered. Yeah, I wouldn't have thought of that. Uh, Mateen, I know you've done a lot of work in, in BC's like Revelstoke Valley and, and talking about, you know, moose management in, 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 in the context of, of conserving and preserving that columbia north herd of endangered southern mountain caribou um that'd be a fascinating one i bet you could talk about that for two hours alone but uh in in the context of indigenous-led wildlife conservation do you believe that there's more of an openness and more of a respect being shown to indigenous traditions and and do you see them being integrated into best practices moving forward what does the future of this look like to you in closing yeah, I think, well, one thing I want to touch on that Ryan said really well was that, you know, culling can be a, a, a last minute measure, kind of an emergency room step. And that's especially the case with caribou. Uh, culling wolves, reducing wolves is really the emergency room measure when the herd is, you know, below a certain threshold. But the ultimate solutions to uh, recovering caribou include habitat recovery, and balancing food webs, um, such as reducing moose and white-tailed deer, which is part of my master's. And to answer your question directly there about, um, yeah, the appetite for indigenous-led uh, conservation, I think that there's tremendous momentum with that. You know, in British Columbia, we passed Bill 41. We were one of the first jurisdictions in the world to acknowledge the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And in BC, we also have uh, this awesome wildlife strategy called Together for Wildlife, where they're really centering this co-managed approach where there's this shared governance model of conducting wildlife management and uh, land use management where Indigenous peoples and provincial governments and federal governments have this kind of equal and equitable say in how the land is managed. And I very much think that uh, that is a good model. And I think that that's something that we're going to see more and more of. Hmm. Gary's watching in from Middle Lake, Saskatchewan this morning. He says, interesting show as always. He says, I quit taking the dogs on my hikes here because of the pigs. So that's that's real life. This is impacting people. A fascinating conversation. Uh, my thanks to wild pig expert 
Dr. Ryan Brook out of the University of Saskatchewan and Mateen Hassami, who's been joining us, a wildlife ecologist specializing in caribou and moose ecology and indigenous led wildlife conservation. Gentlemen, we're grateful for your expertise. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thanks for having us. You bet. Uh, Craig, with an important question that I'd like to put in front of the two of you, uh, Sam and Sarah, uh, I'm not sure if you saw Craig's question. Uh, Craig wonders, would you rather fight 100 duck sized horses or one horse sized duck? Craig says, I'm fighting the giant duck. Uh, He says, I'm in it for the fight. Craig's nuts. If he thinks that he could beat a horse sized duck. Think of how big even the I mean, you're thinking of the bill, the duck's bill. Think of that. That's like the size of a kiddie pool. That thing just clapping, smacking around. But what about the the webbed feet? Can you imagine the de- horse, uh, duck-sized horses. No, what, what are they going to do? Get out your hockey stick. No problem. Hoyles, a hundred duck-sized horses or one horse-sized duck. Don't we have enough problems with actual things like wild pigs? I wanted to get off. I wanted to get off the idea of murdering thousands of animals that are innocent. Um, instead, no, I'm just kidding. I'm, just, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm just being I, every conversation needs a hippie and I'm being the one for the I get it. The science behind calls is just it's it's like I'm, I'm just this is a hippie. This is an, an, an unscientific, emotionally based sort of rose colored glasses, almost Pollyanna type perspective on this. I admit but it, I just go back to the helicopter blowing mm. away wolves. And I just and, and then someone's going to say, well, what about the wolves? What if they're in your backyard? What happens if the wolves do? And then like, sure, fair enough. And like wild pigs, like we don't, you know, I just I just it's it's just it, but this is real life. We we were excited a few summers ago to be hiking into this lake to do some fishing until we found out that that lake had been one where wildlife technicians and, and you know, through the national parks and their programs, they had basically wiped out the fish i think it was bull trout that they were what's the native one the native species is the bull trout or the invasive ones i can't remember there's a there's a there's one species of trout that's a real problem and they're like they got to get rid of them so they basically send like they can do it with electrical charges they can do it with poisoning they they basically call an entire lake of fish and you're kind of (laughs) like what but at the same time there's science behind it they're like listen like it's done in the effort of long-term preservation of native species and you got to do it i acknowledge that that's why we want to have these conversations because i get all emotional about it you know i i acknowledge on this front i have a bit of a bleeding heart on it i do you know that's just kind of where i land on it um so we want to lighten the mood and you've you've dodged the question (laughs) on a horse-sized duck or 100 Duck-sized horses. Uh, the little ones. You want to fight the little ones? Yeah, I and feel like can I you could think kick them. Kick them exactly. I, can't, I just had a oh, an Im- a mental image, and I gotta like, stop. You gotta just. The answer is a hockey stick. That's the answer. <laughs> Sam, have you made up your mind? We've given you plenty I'm of time to think about it. About this. Oh yeah, no, I would also take the little ones for sure. I don't know if it would be with a hockey stick. I don't. I want to know why I'm fighting them. Like a hundred duck-sized horses. Well, they're coming just at sounds, you. It's you didn't pick the fight. They're well, coming at you. They, like they just seem like a nuisance that I'd ignore. Be like, go back to the river valley, back to your mini horse, you know, community. Like, jeez, okay. the, the, the horse-sized duck sounds terrifying. Oh, like one smack of the bill and you're done. Like, forget it. I don't care how tough you think you are. 
zigzag says a swan could break your neck with its wings like people are underestimating the uh thanks to gina and joe and everybody else for saint jessica bull trout are the ones we're protecting so there you go i appreciate that uh yeah Ari said straight confirming a goose can break an adult human's arm with its wings what really okay don't fight geese this weekend i guess my well, friends if you get that close you kind of deserve it. Same with like the well, geese and geese are geese are a they're a whole. No someone, man, no, uh, I stand by it. S. McFury was pointing out, by the way, that another call measure, or or maybe not a call. That's not the right word to use, but it's technically, I guess, a sterilization measure. Said that in a community that they reference, I've lost the comment now. Said that they spray the goose eggs, so hmm. that's one way of of sort of sterilizing, I guess, or at least stopping the the next gen of geese. <laughs> so next gen. Uh, Zigzag goes on to say, human interference management just ruins everything. I but I I don't know after hearing from uh, about indigenous practices the idea that there is stewardship there's an idea of stewardship and working within the food system um, I think what we're realizing is that when we bring in species that do not belong that we're not native to this area yeah that's when we run into problems and so it's about identifying those problems and also then human interference as far as landscape and like. The, yeah. the cut lines and all that. We're the kind of ones stuff. screwing everything up. We're the ones that are wrecking everything. Yep. If okay, we're being honest. Show done. <laughs> Coming up in just a second, uh, we're going to award our email of the month. This is the first time we've ever awarded one. This is the inaugural winner of the Real Talk email of the month. But first, I want to remind you about our friends at Eden Landscaping. They're doing a ton of uh, fantastic work right now, getting set for the holidays. And I love, I checked in with Mike and his team earlier this week and I said, hey, what do you want me to be reminding folks right now? They said, how cool is it if you're looking to really say thank you or show somebody you love them, whether it's your partner, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your kids. The gift of landscaping is one that they will never forget and literally a gift they will enjoy every single day. So if you're looking to really send a message this holiday season to somebody you really care about, and you know that they've got an outdoor space that you think could be really brought to life, consider Eden Landscaping. It's the gift they'll enjoy every day via landscapeedmonton.ca. That's how you can contact them and get a free quote. On Monday, we're going to be rolling out our new Real Talk Wine of the Month. And so this is the final time I'll have the pleasure of talking to you about Brewer Clifton. The team there is led by the 2020 Winemaker of the Year, awarded by Wine Enthusiast, the publication. It's Greg Brewer, who's the founder and winemaker at Brewer Clifton. Now, I had a chance to try out their Santa Rita Hills Chardonnay. I was telling you, I'm not a real Chardonnay guy. I loved it. It's a 94-point Chardonnay, a California Chardonnay, 100% estate. They've got a sustainable farming approach there. You can read about on their website, and you can tell. When you get into this wine, I guarantee you're going to like it. If you're open to Chardonnay, you're probably going to love it. And if you're shopping at Wine and Beyond, keep your eye out for Brewer Clifton exclusives. You can ask for Brewer Clifton anywhere you buy your wines and you let them know that Real Talk sent you. So it was back on November 5th that Michael was in touch with the show. And Michael wanted to call me out for how I was reporting on uh, national news involving the Bloc Québécois and its leader, Yves-Francois Blanchette. And though I didn't remember it at the time, Michael reminisced uh, and, and put in front of me that I had invoked somewhat of a, a, a francophone English-speaking accent uh, in recanting some of the things that, or recalling some of the things that Yves-Francois Blanchette had said. And, and Michael wondered if it was okay, if it was kosher. And then he went in and said, you know, I mean, w- would you do that, Ryan, 
uh, if, if it was, you know, a Jewish accent or a South Asian accent or, or maybe an Arabic accent. And it was an open, it wasn't a scathing email. It was just an open question. And it led to conversation on the show. It actually prompted some interviews. And that conversation continued over the course of weeks, quite literally. Well, Michael actually wrote back on November 29th. And he said, I'm so chuffed that my question about accents provoked such interesting discussion with so many different angles and tangents among my peers in the Real Talk Army. He said, I, I must confess that the original query just came up because when I read to my kids, when I read to my kids, I love doing voices like silly or scary or nerdy or high pitched or robotic or whatever. And when it comes to characters of different backgrounds or races, I make my best effort at their authentic accent, totally respectfully, with zero mocking intent to the best of my ability, the way I think they would sound. And he said, and I, and I hope it's all right, because it makes reading more fun. And I know the kids enjoy it, but I would never want to lead my kids astray by diminishing or disrespecting how other people sound. Michael says, so I'm really pleased that I helped inspire an interesting con- conversation. And I truly appreciate that Real Talk provides the venue for that conversation to blossom. And then he signed off with a P.S. that was a little shameless, if I'm being honest. Michael said these days I'm drinking coffee out of a dirty old boot so I could really use a new mug. Well, all right, Michael. All right. You're taking pity on Michael. All right. No, that's the thing is it's not a pity vote. <laughs> he's, a, he's asking for pity, but he doesn't need the pity. He doesn't need it. It's like Jason Kenny cheating in the leadership race, allegedly. He didn't need to do it, but he still did it. All right, Michael. All right. Your email of November 5th on accents is our official Real Talk email of the month for November. One of these real amazing incredible the live studio audience loves the choice they agree with the choice michael a crescent mug a real talk crescent mug will be sent to you uh along with an invoice for 34 dollars. no i'm just kidding <laughs> this one's on the house michael but you can get your very own real talk crescent mug by visiting ryanjesperson.com slash merch and you can find all of our merch we'll ship it in time for the holidays and of course shipping is free shout out to michael we're already putting emails aside for the month of december we'll award another email of the month coming up in december oh and by the way we got a big announcement on a a real talk coffee collaboration coming up next week as well so we got a lot of irons in the fire we got a lot going on before we go any further and get to our tradition here our friday tradition i want to remind you how proud we are to be partnering with the team at local waste They've been keeping it local. I mean, their company ethos around integrity and customer satisfaction. It's what we're all about, too, here at Real Talk. They've been keeping it local, family-owned for more than a quarter century when it comes to construction, commercial, residential waste, and recycling collection. I retweeted them yesterday. You can check it out. They're making the point that they've got 10-foot bins. They've got 40-foot bins. Whatever your project looks like, reno, roofing, landscaping, whatever the case may be, or maybe you're a business owner that needs a bin full-time, Local Waste has you covered and they're willing to compete for your business. If you're not happy with what you're paying with your current provider, get in touch with them to localwaste.ca. They'd love to earn your business. Every Friday, the team at Local Waste also gives us an opportunity to blow off a little steam to get some things off our chest. It's a tradition here on the show that we call Trash Talk! This one from Devin, who says, my trash talk, Jespo, it's aimed right at you. I do not care for your Jespo Pisco Sour. I love that. How Canadian his trash talk is that he doesn't care for my beer. He says, my brother-in-law brought over a couple for me to try this past summer. One of them is still in the fridge. 
He says that my real trash talk is people who think they need to veer into the next lane when they're making a turn. You're not pulling tandem trailers. You're not pulling a flatbed with a track hoe on the deck. Learn how to turn properly. Peace. That from Devin, who's not a bit. No, what did he say? He doesn't care for my Jespo Pisco Sour. More for me, pal. I don't care that you don't care. Wait, what? Pisco Sour coming out again next summer. Tell your friends. How about this one from David? I think we call that a soft announcement that I just did. That's why you got to listen to Trash Talk, baby. David says, hey, hey, folks, hey, when you're at the head of the turning lane, your only job is this is like a traffic theme Trash Talk today. Your only job is to pay attention to when the turning light comes on and then turn with wild abandon. There's nothing stopping you. You have a flashing arrow. There are like five people behind you waiting to turn too. see it as your duty to pay attention to the light get off your phone quit the navel gazing just go that from david not texting from traffic how about this one from shalane who says so last thursday jespo I decided to delay driving my kids to school because the roads were so bad from freezing rain and icy condition. So they were pumped. Extra time at home. But I wanted to know how much time they had. And I said I wasn't sure. I was checking road reports and then I thought it better we go later. And then they noticed I had Real Talk queued up on my laptop. So my son says, why don't we just go after Real Talk? And she says, so I agreed. Around 10.30 a.m. Mountain Time, the roads would be better. And she says, and then the show ended at 9.38. And the kids were not impressed that they had to leave an hour earlier. She's says, no, there may be good reasons why the show's tightening up, but try explaining that to my kids. They were trash-talking you all the way to school. That from Shalane. Tell your kids, thanks for tuning in. And this one from Graham, who says, to the weasel at the Kinsman Center last Sunday, who wore nothing but a small towel for a loincloth into the public co-ed sauna. What the hell is wrong with you? You know full well it's a co-ed public sauna, pal. Your agenda was clear as day the moment you walked in you're an exhibitionist and pulling a nudist stunt was your way of getting cheap thrills i'm guessing you've been pushing the limits with this stunt for a while now you sat beside a woman and put yourself right beside the door she didn't have a choice to call you out and as i sat there considering what to do i thought back to the men's panel on real talk a week ago men standing up to men when lines are crossed that's not cool so a minute after you left you know i followed you out and i met you now fully naked in the co-ed public show your embarrassment and your agenda oozed off you. You knew you weren't in the men's change room or your own personal spa, you fucking loser. So you've been reported. A clear description right down to your saggy, sorry ass. Last thing, the icing on the cake? You stole my fucking towel. Get a life. That from... Graham! Trash Talk's a real email sent to us to talk at ryanjesperson.com. We'd love to hear from you. Coming up on the show next week, what the recent verdicts in the Rittenhouse trial, the murder of Ahmad Arbery, the Unite the Right defendants, those $26 million in damages awarded for Charlottesville, what do they mean for society? What do they mean here in Canada? Plus, a new study that finds older couples' heart rates synchronize. What does it say about love as we age? Have a great weekend. We love you guys. Sincerely, we'll talk to you Monday. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Editorial producer, Sarah Hoyles. Technical producer, Sam Brooks. Managing director, Josh Dunford. Account coordinator, Tanya Franklin. Merchandise operations, Katie Cook-Chivers. Website design, Mike Johnston. Voiceover by me, Carrie Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Sapria Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Anne Castleman, 
Corey Hogan, Julie Rohr, Carmen Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Salto, and Nakota Sioux, home to Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is the flagship property of Relay Communications Group Incorporated. All rights reserved. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.